If you've been listening to the Weekly Economics podcast for a while, you'll have heard us talk a lot about the climate crisis, from funding a Green New Deal to the future of the climate movement. With the COP26 Global Climate Conference coming up later this year, we're going to spend the next five episodes looking at some of the biggest climate issues, starting this week with greenwashing. At BP, we see possibilities everywhere. While Shell and BP have both been mocked for their social media campaigns, portraying them as being in the vanguard of renewable energy and airbrushing out their continuing focus on fossil fuels. Let's make the future. Last month, 20 young people and scientists attempted to occupy London's Science Museum. They were protesting the fact that a new exhibition on the climate crisis was being sponsored by Shell. Protesters accused Shell of using their sponsorship to greenwash its reputation. The occupation ended after the museum swiftly called 40 police officers out to remove them. Drop Shell sponsorship! Drop Shell sponsorship! We wanted an exhibition focused on climate justice, not technological solutions that did nothing to address the root causes of the climate crisis. It's ridiculous. We wouldn't do this with any other industry. We don't ask companies that produce weapons to start having conversations and teaching us about world peace. The fact that we allow oil companies this access to our cultural spaces, is it makes no sense when you think about it in any other context. Greenpeace has recently said that we're living in a golden age of greenwashing, and the Treasury set up a new group to clamp down on the practice in the financial sector. But what is greenwashing? Why are companies like Coca-Cola and H&M suddenly desperate to prove their green credentials? And is it lulling us into a false sense of security that we're tackling the climate crisis? And I still believe that the biggest danger is not in action. The real danger is when politicians and CEOs are making it look like real action is happening when, in fact, almost nothing is being done apart from clever accounting and creative PR. Welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast. In this episode, we're asking, should we trust companies when they tell us they're going green? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm pleased to be joined down the line by Alice Bell, Director of Communications at Possible and author of the upcoming book, Our Biggest Experiment, A History of the Climate Crisis. Hi, Alice. Hiya. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I am staying in my office, which is a little bit weird because I'm the only one and I feel like it should be full of people sorting climate change, but they're at their home sorting climate change. (laughs) Sorting climate change from home. Yeah. Well, that's reassuring that it's happening from somewhere. Yeah. Let's dive in then. So as we heard in the intro, Greenpeace has said that we're living in a golden age of greenwashing. Um, And so I wanted to just kick off with the obvious question. What is greenwashing? I mean, it's a kind of clever PR, really, but it's a particularly clever bit of PR. It's when a company or maybe a political party even, which is doing stuff that's really bad for the environment, kind of does a bit of misdirection, a bit of conjuring trick, goes, oh, don't look at this huge oil rig over here. Look at this nice little recycling project over here. And my favorite example of greenwashing is when a airport set up a a system where you could reuse your coffee cups. You bought your coffee from uh, one of the coffee chains because you'd normally buy your coffee and then you couldn't use your reusable cup and take it on a plane because they wouldn't allow that. And so people were using plastic 
coffee cups before they got on the plane. And they were like, look how green we are. You can reuse our cups because you can leave them at the terminal and they'll get washed and reused in the shops. And it's like, yeah, it's great, but you're an airport. Uh, that's, that's kind of what greenwashing is. That's a really good example. Um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I mean, there's certainly a lot of parallels between, you know, everything from companies saying coming out in the George Floyd uprising moment and saying, we really care about black lives, but then not being willing to kind of, for example, address the disparity among the pay between staff of color in their own organization, just to take one very small example. Oh, totally. And like pinkwashing has really become a thing in uh, mm. the last few years. And obviously the last month of being pride, we've really seen a lot of examples of that. Yeah, maybe I've never heard the term blackwashing, but I think I'm going to try and make it a thing. I'm sure it is a thing. And someone's listening to this is going to be like, it's already a thing. Here's an article written by someone great. If it is, please let us know. If not, maybe I'll write that article. Anyway, so let's let's carry on talking about greenwashing. This episode is about greenwashing. So is it new? Is it different? I mean, marketing's always been about making potential customers feel connected to a company and, you know, feel good about their purchasing power and stuff like that. So is greenwashing kind of really a new, shiny, clever phenomena or is it just an extension of that? I definitely agree that we're living in a golden age of it. I think we've seen a big resurgence of it the last few years, but it's not new. We saw a big push on it in the noughties. I think probably a lot of your listeners remember that, where a lot of uh, oil companies saying like BP rebranded to be beyond petroleum and had adverts saying things like, we're really into renewable energy, like a cappuccino. Uh, That was one of the billboards they had back then. And I think probably if you go looking in like adverts of the 1860s, you could probably see examples of it too in different ways. The term was coined, I think, in the 80s, but I'd say it probably actually started as a phenomenon properly in around the 60s. And it was a creation of the packaging industry. Basically, a lot of rubbish was piling up by the 1960s, partly because people were having more disposables, but also because they were making those disposables out of plastic. So they were sticking around a lot longer. And this was starting to annoy people. So it's actually glass packaging, I think, that started to annoy people the most because it's dangerous. You have a glass bottle and it breaks. And if you have that in a countryside, that could hurt livestock. So there's farmers really annoyed at the rise of disposable packaging, potentially endangering their livestock. And the packaging industry realized that there was a threat. They might get regulated. They might have to have reusables rather than disposables. And that would just be annoying for them. And they wouldn't be able to sell things in the same way. Uh, So they had a sort of fight back on that. And they created littering campaigns, basically, and put the blame on the consumer and said, the problem isn't the packaging. The problem is the littering. And they made themselves look like these great saviors of the environment. They had all these adverts kind of putting the blame on the consumers for littering and providing bins and uh, littering campaigns and things like we've seen quite a lot of this recently with the kind of the last few years, there's obviously been a lot more conversations about plastic and we've seen things like beach cleanups and these are, you know, beach cleanups are great. People who do beach cleanups are brilliant, but it's very easy for a company that markets a lot of disposable plastic to be like, ah, we're sponsoring this recycling bin or this beach pickup project. And they put the emphasis on the litterers, not the creation of that litter in the first place. And so I'd say that greenwashing really started with the litter campaigns and the packaging industry in the 60s. And it's just riffed off in multiple different ways from then. There's also 1970, there was this Earth Day. So you might have remembered in around April time this year, there was a big fuss for a big Earth Day conference that mm. Biden did. It's more of an American thing, but it was, it's a big deal in America, Earth Day, every April. That started in 1970. And it, the first Earth Day was really, really massive. Some people think that like one in 10 Americans was involved in it. It was a big quite radical in places call for action on the environment but like the year later people were like how can we monetize this and there were loads of brands being like ah i'm doing this thing for earth day and you've got this very performative environmentalism through corporate 
which is another sort of stage of greenwashing. That's super useful. So yeah, this is obviously something that's been going on for a while. That is uh, no surprise, but I think it's really important, as you say, to kind of differentiate between maybe what's gone before and then this real surge or, or golden age that we're in at the moment. I do think it's really important to talk briefly about the kind of real world impacts of this kind of practice. I mean, just to mention the deadly heat waves that are happening right now in Pakistan and the West of Canada in the US, what does greenwashing have to do with these very real dangers of the climate crisis? Is there a link there? Well, quite often, because it is a form of misdirection, it means that you're not looking at the real cause and you're not taking action on the cause. And so when greenwashing is really successful, it's making you look at the litterers, not the litter creation, or with sort of stuff around climate change, just making you think about, oh, it's my carbon footprint that's a problem. I need to give up meat once a week rather than thinking, right, I actually need to take down the oil industry. And if you know, if an oil company can successfully rebrand as beyond petroleum and make people believe that they are beyond petroleum while they're still burning a lot of fossil fuels, then that's, you know, keeping on fueling the problem rather than doing anything about it. I don't think that if we accept the greenwash and let it happen, then it's very dangerous. But I think on the most part, most people aren't fooled by it. And a lot of the time we just laugh at it. Mm, Yeah. I mean, let's go into the nitty gritty a little bit because I want to take an example from one very powerful sector. So how are fossil fuel companies using greenwashing just to make this really tangible? And there's quite lots of examples because they are in many ways the masters of it. I mean, there's the recent example at the Science Museum of sponsoring an exhibition. Or they've been, I mean, Shell actually sponsored the Climate Change Gallery 10 years ago or so. I mean, these things aren't new. There was a controversy about Shell sponsoring the Climate Change Gallery a long time ago. Uh, it's just protests around this sort of sponsorships more focused on the art galleries in recent years. And it's only recently that the youth strikers have got particularly annoyed. Uh, particularly because they used one of their placards in the exhibition. They very understandably got particularly annoyed about it and have drawn a lot of attention to this exhibition. So that's one example. But, I mean, Shell's been doing loads of this stuff for ages. They realised a while back that they were really struggling to recruit young people because young people care about the environment and don't want to work for Shell. And that was hurting their ability to run as a business. So they started sponsoring loads more stuff aimed at young people and trying to make themselves look like they are, you know, that you would have a future with them. Um, so they have this campaign called Make the Future, hashtag Make the Future. You can look it up. They've got some incredibly beautiful videos. They've got a huge amount of money into it. There's a particular one where they've got Pele in this football stadium, which the lights, the football pitch are powered by a thing called Regen, which is when you run on the ground, it creates electricity. So the footballers themselves are powering the lights. And it's all like, isn't this beautiful? Look at this beautiful vision of, of football with Pele and these so lovely, beautifully shot. And they're like, yeah, but that's not really what you're mainly doing. Mainly you are working to take a lot of oil out of the ground and burn it. And that's the sort of thing they have been doing quite a lot of, and they're particularly focusing on young people, which I think is also why it's so important and interesting that the youth strikers that are pushing back at the Science Museum, because that's their key market and they're not, they're not listening to it. They're not having it. They don't believe it. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's reassuring. Um, I know that some fossil fuel majors, some of the ones that you mentioned, they've known about the damage that they're doing to the climate, obviously, since the 70s, and then have gone on to kind of fund massive disinformation campaigns to keep it quiet. So why are they so keen to kind of pivot and promote their green credentials now? What's changed? Well, I think we've seen a new wave of it in the last few years. Uh, we saw a big wave of it in the mid noughties as well. And these track with public interest in climate change. And the oil industry has known about climate change as long as science has. And we've seen, I'd say, the birth of modern climate science is kind of the mid-1950s. We knew the basics that, what we learned at school about the greenhouse effect, we knew the basics of that in the 1850s. And we kind of built up 
bits of knowledge along the way, but it wasn't really until the 1950s that we got organised and started properly and government started investing in, in programmes to study this carbon dioxide issue and, other, and sort of then discovered that there were other greenhouse gases and really started to think about it. And around that same time in the mid-50s, you had scientists employed for working for oil companies also doing this research. And they'd been tracking these things because they were interested in air pollution way before they worried about climate change. And you know, they knew about it in the 50s. They did quite a lot, Exxon in particular, did quite a lot of research in the late 70s, early 80s. And then they saw people taking action on it. They saw people like Thatcher and even George Bush Sr. sort of saying things like, in the election at the end of the, of the 80s in America, you've got George Bush Sr. saying, hey, you've heard about the greenhouse effect. Well, let me tell you about the White House effect and really promising to see action on climate change. You've got people like Thatcher trying to promote herself as a real leader on climate action. And understandably, the oil industry got kind of worried. They were like, these people are meant to be our friends and they're potentially talking about action on climate change, which would limit our ability to make money. And they pivoted from going, oh, we should research this problem because it's a big part of what we're doing to the earth and going, oh, no, we need to delay action on this. And how can we delay action on it as much as possible and they realized if they could get people talking about whether it happens or not and fuel climate skepticism they kind of invested that so they amplified it they weaponized it and created several decades more doubt and that started to erode in the mid-noughties and we saw another big wave of a push for climate action emerging on the run-up to the Copenhagen talks in 2009 we saw groups like BP call themselves Beyond Petroleum make kind of performative investments in renewables and make a big deal of those to kind of do the misdirection trick of going, look, that's what we do. We're a solar company. Uh, like, you look at the adverts from oil companies, you'd think that they spend all of their money and time trying to work with special new kinds of algae that are going to power the world or uh, in building solar panels, all these beautiful football pitches with Pele. You wouldn't think that actually what they mainly do is drill for oil and gas. And they did all that in the noughties. And then climate action kind of fell away. The climate talks in 2009 in Copenhagen kind of, they're a bit of a disaster, really. And they sort of fell apart, really. And with the economic downturn, a lot of people shifted their attention and kind of the wind came out of the, the sails a bit for climate action for a few years. And But then as it built up again around 2015 with the Paris talks, the public around the world, everybody wants climate action. No one wants climate change. Most of us believe in it, worry about it, want to see our politicians taking action. And the oil industry can see that and they're thinking, right, what are our tactics for delay? We tried this climate skepticism thing. That worked in the 90s. It's not really flying anymore. Well, we're going to pretend to be people's friends, you know, and they're going to, they're trying more and more tactics to convince us that they're our friends rather than something that we kind of need to stop doing. Oh, so bloody dastardly. It's really annoying. Dastardly sounds like a... It sounds like I'm making light of it, which I'm not. But when you were just talking it through, I was just like, it feels like the kind of machinations, the behind the scenes machinations that these companies will go to knows no bounds, which is always disappointing, never surprising. I want to talk a little bit about if and how this maps onto like policy and lobbying, because I think that your answer to this is going to be no. But does the fact that these companies now really care, apparently, about their green image and and making consumers believe that they're you know, environmental warriors, does that map on to the political changes that they're calling for? Are they lobbying the government for greener policies? Is that something that's happened? I mean, it can happen. And it, it, I guess one of the things that's slightly different about this wave of greenwash now than in the mid-noughties is that a lot of the oil companies do have quite major investments in renewable energy now. It's still a tiny amount of their portfolio for groups like BP or Shell or Exxon, but they exist. Like BP Solar Arm is is big by by solar 
standards. It's not very big by the standards of the energy industry. And you can see some companies, groups like, you know, used to be called Statoil, they've changed their name to Equinor. They're still very actively pursuing uh, oil and gas. But I think they do have a, a much larger portfolio of renewables and there is potential for them maybe to transform to be a renewable company i don't know see where we are but also another one maybe even more on the side of actually transforming they used to be called dom which is danish oil and natural gas uh, but they changed to Ulsted a few years ago and like they do seem to be really transforming and they are a major player in wind and they are part of the mix of people who will be lobbying for renewable energy so there is something there we should be wary of saying oh well they're renewable companies because I think it's really important that we see that there's somebody like Allstead is different from Shell. And if Shell is serious about not being an oil company anymore, they really have to change their portfolio quite dramatically if anyone's going to really listen to that. Yeah, something tells me that's not going to happen, but we live in hope. I mean, Shell's called Shell because they started selling shells. They used to sell little boxes covered in shells and they used to import and export all sorts of stuff from pepper to peacock feathers, uh, rice and all sorts of stuff. That's how they got into the oil business. And then they gradually got more and more into the oil business so that now they're what's known as a vertically integrated company. So they do basically everything to do with oil and gas. And you can't really think of them as doing anything other than oil and gas, but they're called Shell because they used to sell shells. So I kind of live in hope that they could be transformed in some other company and sell something else someday. Yeah, maybe one day they'll be called, I don't know, what's a good thing to sell? Cake? <laughs> I couldn't think of anything better than cake. That is so depressing. Um, okay, so just to circle back to what we were discussing earlier with Shell and the Science Museum and things like that, I want to talk a little bit about art washing and I guess like the social license to operate and how fossil fuel companies and others, how and why they use cultural institutions to promote themselves. I'd love to understand a bit more about what's going on there, because as you say, it's not just Shell and the Science Museum, it's the Royal Shakespeare Company and the Tate. It seems to be a bit of a trend. And I'm wondering if you have more to say on that. Well, yeah, it's um, it was a trend. I think groups like Liberate Tate have successfully got them kicked out with various cultural institutions. It was a trend that started around the same time that the oil companies started investing in climate skeptics. So you sort of see this real push against climate action in the 90s, where they realized that this thing that lots of climate activists call the social license to operate, this sense that an oil company is a socially acceptable thing to exist. They wanted to make sure that people still thought it was okay for Shell to exist because they could see the tide was tiling and people were like, mm, I don't like that. Don't want that. Let's close them down. And they worked in a lot of different places you know they've got very canny PR they spend a lot of money on it they thought about lots of different places they need to fight and they realized the opportunity of sponsoring arts institutions they also in the states um sponsored a lot of television which would be the kind of high-end what Americans think is really classy or basically British TV so a lot of like British costume drama is actually kind of indirectly funded by the oil industry because they're made because they know they can sell to the states for a load of money but then there's loads of advertising money around that is from the oil companies because they're strategically aiming at audiences that watch what americans think of as classy which is just like people with british accents really but um, that's something i don't think we always appreciate in the uk we sort of look at like the royal shakespeare company and the tates and their relationships in the past with oil companies and see that as of them working on that but they were also using our cultural output in other countries too for other audiences there was a big backlash events that that went on for you know decades groups like rising tide initially and then liberate tate bp or not bp they're still fighting the good fight at the british museum and they're moving on to the science museum but they have successfully really managed to make it awkward for these cultural institutions to have a relationship 
with oil companies, it would be very, very difficult for art galleries to do that. And it, in the Science Museum increasingly looks a little bit weird and a little bit isolated. Aside from the fact that they're the Science Museum and they're trying to have an exhibition about climate change, it still looks odd in the, in the museum sector that they do that. Uh, I would say that, again, it's sort of, you saw this big question in the 90s, but it didn't start in the 90s. And I, I, one of the things I learned when I was reading, uh, researching from my book was that this kind of started in the 40s. And there was this big scandal in America with one of the oil companies. There was a scandal around one of the leaders in the oil company being involved with Nazis and helping various fascists get oil, which Americans weren't into. And that was seen as unpatriotic and dangerous and it was the shares in, in I think it was Texaco dropped quite considerably because it was quite a bit of a scandal about it and they started sponsoring the Met Opera in New York and that sponsorship deal went on until 2003 because uh, they realized the potential of just putting their name next to stuff that rich people like it gives you a chance to be associated with stuff that rich people like but also gives you a chance to like buy tickets to invite politicians to do lobbying so you have you get to have your name on all the advertising for Tate Britain's new exhibition, but you also get to have a private view that you can invite those people you want to impress to. That's one of the things that the protesters would often say is like, you're really selling yourself cheap. I mean, like if you're going to sell Tate Modern to Shell, charge them a bit more. Um, they certainly got a lot out of it while they while were there, there, but it's increasingly difficult to do because people come and occupy your museum and that's inconvenient. And it's much easier just to get sponsorship from someone else. Yeah, I really love your framing of it as the protesters that have just made it quite awkward for certain cultural institutions to partner with them. I was like, that is such a British way to stop something happening. Just make it really awkward for everyone. I very much enjoyed that. Let's talk about one particular type of greenwashing that corporations love. And that is the idea of net zero. The Science Museum justified its decision to have Shell as an exhibition sponsor by pointing to the company's net zero pledge. Can you explain to us what a net zero commitment is and why it's not as good as it might seem when it comes to these corporate partnerships we've been discussing? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a good example of something new in greenwashing, like a whole new tactic to their conjurer's sort of magic box. The difficulty is the idea of net. So net zero is the idea that you have zero emissions because you might burn a bit of coal, but you kind of make up for it by planting a forest. It's offsetting, basically. And it started because when we look at how we're going to decarbonize a whole country or something, or a really big company like somebody like Unilever or something, they're like, well, we are going to have to burn a little bit of carbon still. Like we're still breathing. We're still emitting carbon. We're all emitting carbon right now, as long as it evens up to be zero. And for things like our really big challenges, like concrete or steelmaking or flying for you know very occasional reasons, I can see why you'd have a net. But the problem is, is it becomes very slippery and people go, oh, how, how big can I make that net? How much can I push into it? They make pledges about it, which are quite unrealistic. And so you can say, oh, we're going to have net zero, but actually you're planning on building like forests that would take two planets to be able to grow or something like that. The other thing with oil companies talking about net zero is they normally mean for their own practices. So they'll be like, oh, well, if I fly, then I'll offset my flight. And you're like, all right, that's still cheating, but okay. But they're not thinking about the fact that they're flying to sell a lot of oil. So when um, when the oil companies are talking about their net zero pledges, they're not talking about the impact of their products. They're just talking about their own operations. And that's really cheating. And so it's really disingenuous of anyone to look at an oil company's net zero and go, oh, that's a promise that they're good because they're still an oil company. But I think you'll see more and more greenwashing like that. Or some of this can get a bit more slippery. So if you like buy some soap and it says it's carbon zero soap or carbon negative soap, and you're like, oh, that sounds good. 
it might be that it is a bit greenwashy or it could be that like, all right, well, you planted a forest. That's probably a better thing to do with your profits than go on holiday on a plane. But it does really depend on the product and who's selling it and lots of detail that as general consumers, we generally don't know. It's a little bit more straightforward with, with oil companies because you can just go, ha ha, you're an oil company. But when it's something like a bit of soap or a new jumper or something, it might be a little bit more slippery. And if you really want to make sure that you feel comfortable in what you're buying, you might have to do a bit more Googling. Just following on from what you were just saying about the individual choice thing, like it kind of brings me back to what you were saying earlier about essentially one of the kind of negative outcomes of greenwashing is that it makes consumers and individuals in general think that they're kind of personally responsible for reversing the impacts of climate change. And they can do that by, say, buying a carbon neutral bar of soap, as you say. And it kind of draws attention away from the oil companies and and fossil fuel companies and things like that. I want to hear a little bit more about what you were saying about carbon offsetting at that kind of individual level, because, you know, companies from Shell to EasyJet enable their customers to offset the climate impact of their products in certain ways and whatever. And of course, people lean into that and are encouraged by that. And so I'm just wondering how those two things link together, this idea that we're all personally responsible and that lots of companies subsequently enable us to enact that responsibility through this process of offsetting, which as I'm hearing is not as simple as it sounds. Yeah, I think that's another good example of where you get this sort of green consumerism. Being a green consumer is a good thing. Like thinking about your consumption patterns and how you might limit their impact on the environment is something that I think all of us should be doing. Bear in mind that like, if you are a listener to this podcast, you are probably a middle class British person and therefore have a much larger environmental footprint than the average human on earth. We should take responsibility for those choices that we make. But people are selling us stuff, notice that we care about these things and think, ah, this is an opportunity to sell you more stuff which we don't need. You had a really good example there, which is by airlines saying, ah, you can offset. Because they know that when lots of us are booking flights now, we feel really uncomfortable about it. And they want us to feel good about it. They want us to feel okay about it. So they say, oh, you can offset. Depending on where you get your offset from, it could be really problematic in itself. Like there are all sorts of problems with how you do offsetting, which can lead to people being displaced, like offsetting projects being done on occupied lands and things to just not very well managed ones, which cause other environmental problems. And even when they are good, they are still kind of cheating because like we know that the challenge of climate is so massive that we have to do all of this work that even the good offsetting projects would be doing, like growing new forests and stuff. And we also need to be cutting back on how many flights we take. Like we can't just say, oh, it's okay to do this bad thing because I did this other good thing. We can't just let think that or even it out because we need to be doing so much action that we need to be doing all of the things, including cutting back. So it's sort of these signals to us as consumers that it's all okay are a form of misdirection and can be really, really malignant, particularly when it's something like an airline saying, oh, no, it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry that you just took a plane between like London and Manchester rather than taking the train. That's okay. They shouldn't be allowed to make you feel like that. And or we shouldn't accept it when they offer it to us. And then there's also things that are like making you buy stuff that you don't need, but make you feel like it's green. I'm sure a lot of you have got more than one reusable coffee cup. <laughs> like It doesn't really work if you have like 10 of them. Um, that's still plastic waste. In fact, that's often quite carbon intensive plastic waste. Or like, I'm sure lots of you have got cupboards full of reusable cotton bags. That is a problem if you're like, oh, I have another cotton bag, another cotton bag. And like, it doesn't mean that it's better to just have a plastic bag and throw it that way. It's just, we need to stop with the cotton bags. It's the kind of the age old climate question, I guess, that every time we talk about it on the podcast comes up again and again, which is how do we navigate or how should we think about even trying to navigate this? I guess it's a dynamic between 
what individual responsibility looks like and the idea that it's all our responsibility and also that we can meet that responsibility by doing certain small things. This is part of a tactic of greenwash is that the companies that want us to keep doing damaging things can see that we feel insecure about this and see that it's a complicated thing where it's not a clear cut thing of like, oh, I can blame myself or I can blame the government or whatever. It's, it's not straightforward. There are lots of different things that people need to do. And some of these decisions are quite difficult to make. And as consumers, there are so many things that happen behind the scenes that we don't see that like to us to learn about the supply chains is just too complicated for us and we shouldn't be expected to do. They see this opportunity of all this confusion and they weaponize it the same way as the climate skeptic movement weaponized the natural tendency for doubt in science and made it into this really corrosive thing that amplified doubts that didn't really exist or didn't need to exist to that level to delay climate action for years. Uh, we're seeing another form of this kind of delay action happen by going, oh, maybe it's your fault. Maybe it's this person's fault, or maybe you should do this. Or, And I think a lot of us think, oh, I want to take action on climate change and then look at it and go, oh, it's so confusing and kind of give up. And that's a win for the oil industry. And they've in places actually made it so that we feel confused and so we feel like that. And, but we do know that like BP, as part of their Beyond Petroleum work, actively promoted the idea of carbon footprinting. And it's the same tactic that the littering campaigns took in the 60s. They were like, it's not the company uh, that's selling you the oil's problem. It's all of you for doing your action. Like it's, it's the NRA's line of guns don't kill people, people kill people. It's the same tactic applied to environmental action. And that's not to say that carbon footprinting is necessarily entirely a bad idea. Or if you want to, you know, take a carbon footprinting quiz, it might, you know, it might well give you a sense of like things you could do in your own life and help you reflect on that. But an oil company pushing it is then saying like, you need to do this rather than me and making you feel confused. Because you, you take one of these carbon footprinting quizzes and you see all these different ways that you need to tackle climate change in your own life. And you very understandably go, ah, I can't do this. And a lot of us give up when maybe we could have a little bit more single-mindedness and go, hmm, I can see who the problem is or a core bit of the problem, which is the oil companies. Mm, yeah, I think it's such a complex one because I, I've had that conversation with so many people who have said, you know, well, if the real problem is the big companies, then it doesn't really make a difference if I have a plastic cup or a paper cup. You know, at the end of the day, we're powerless to stop the people who are doing the bad thing. And me making the small change isn't going to, you know, impact the course of history enough. So effort. And I think that that's, that's kind of where we as, I guess, campaigners or progressives need to intervene and make it clear what action can look like. And I'm wondering if you have, yeah, more thoughts for listeners who are really interested in, well, what can I do in terms of understanding that these companies are the targets? How can I, how can I take action? Yeah, well, I think first of all, don't give in to the idea that it's all just the big company's fault. Like that in itself is a way of them willing because it, if it makes you think it's okay to fly, then they're still managing their business model. So don't, first of all, don't play to yet another one of the delayers tactics. But do you think that you can have action? I think the problem is maybe splitting us up into individuals and thinking about ourselves as just a single entity. Now, there's no such thing as the individual when it comes to climate change. An individual alone can't have a massive carbon footprint. Like you could drive an SUV yourself, but you were reliant on so many other people around the world to build that SUV, to power it, to refine the oil that goes in it, to have designed it in the first place and generations of engineers. And that's just thinking of the car, let alone the road. As an entity, it's society and social groups and groups of people who have both huge carbon emissions, but then can also unravel it. And we will only unravel the problem of climate change by working together. So like you can do something that you might think of as like, an individual action like cut down on your meat or cut down on your flying. But don't think of it as something you do yourself. Think of it as something you talk to other people about and that you can do with other people. As you're 
having a great vegan feast with your mates talking about how great it is that you're high down carbon you can also be talking about like well, how can we make this easier for everyone else how can we you know fight against different systems of food buying and selling you know i think Groups like Veganuary have actually done that quite effectively. They've really shifted quite a lot of cultural and social and economic change just by having people collectively given up meat. And I think we could think about that model for some other stuff too. And then, you know, don't just think, oh, well, it's just stuff like in terms of stuff I consume, you can get political. And again, it's not just about, oh, I feel a bit isolated in terms of who I vote or I emailed my MP and he sent me a patronizing reply. So what can I do? I'm like, well, get together with a group of people and show your MP that you're not just the only one. And then they'll get scared and they'll take action or... Hang out with the youth strikers and occupy a museum. If that's not your style, there are plenty of other ways where you can have action as a group. Like I think the divestment movement has been a really good way of bringing people together to do something that would otherwise be quite abstract and potentially quite demotivating work, which is trying to get people to stop investing in fossil fuels. You could just have a load of isolated individual activists writing letters to their MPs or pension providers or museums or universities, and they'd feel really after a few times of being patronised, they'd stop. But actually what the divestment movement realised was if you collect people in groups and give them a mission to work together, they keep each other going through those times where it's a bit frustrating. And that applies to any form of climate action. You know, work together with others, you'll keep each other going when it feels like it's a bit useless. And you'll see how that impact is a lot more because it's already being replicated and spread but than just you on your own. Mm, collective action for the win. And occupying museums, also a really great strategy. Finally then, just before we wrap up, It seems like people are calling out greenwashing more and more, and that's fantastic. But do you think that widespread accusations of greenwashing might actually kind of backfire and make companies more wary of changing how they operate for fear of drawing kind of negative attention to themselves? Is that something that you think might happen? I mean, it has certainly been a concern within the sustainability movement that there's something called green hush and that groups don't want to talk about what they're doing in case they get accused of greenwashing. Uh, backlash against greenwashing was successful enough. The kind of last wave we had it in the mid-noughties that people stopped sort of showing what they were doing. And yeah, I guess there is a bit of a danger in it. You know, I take the mickey out of the coffee company working with an airport. Maybe I'm stopping the coffee company from doing good work on plastics by taking the mick like that. Maybe we all should be more encouraging. But I, I think we have to think uh, about how we balance that. And I think there's, it's worth a bit of healthy skepticism and mit taking of ones which we do think are a bit ridiculous and not letting people go off the hook with that but yeah i guess at the same time i do want companies to feel that they can be bold about showing off what they're doing partly because that will encourage other companies to do it like one of the things we've seen in the last few years is why we're having this golden age of greenwash is partly because we've had lots of people realize their customers want to see green action they've taken action and showed that and done it sometimes more performatively than realistically but some of them you know have quite a lot of work behind it and are serious about it and that's encouraged other people to do it. It's become you know, quite socially acceptable for, or just like normal for lots of brands to be showing this stuff off and doing stuff and for having to kind of back that up with, some, you know, show the receipts because otherwise there's all these people who will shout greenwash at them. We shouldn't be cowed into just uh, letting them get away with whatever they want to by some sense that we'll stop them from, from doing anything if we, if we don't clap and give them a big round of applause every time they plant a tree. Well, we've certainly, there's been no cowering on this podcast, so (laughs) uh, that's a great place to leave it. That is all we've got time for this week. But Alice Bell, thank you so much for joining me. Super comprehensive, super informative and quite hilarious as well. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? I hear there's a book. Well, obviously they should read my book. Uh, It's especially published on the 8th of July but my mum texted me earlier to say she saw it in her local bookshop so oh my god get it ready um, 
It's called Our Biggest Experiment and it's a book about the history of the climate crisis. I hope it has something for anyone who is already obsessed with the climate crisis. They'll find something new, but also it should be a good intro for people who've been like, oh, I feel like I should know more about this, but I feel like other people have been talking about it for years and I need to catch up. It should give you the catch up. But also you shouldn't just sit and read books because we need action. So <laughs> find your favourite climate charity in whatever way that they will help you. I highly recommend Possible because it's the one I work for and our URL is wearepossible.org and we've got loads of tips for things you can do with that. The thing I always say to people about taking action on climate change is do the thing that brings you joy because you'll be best at that and you'll be the most infectious at it. So you know, go to the place that will, will bring you joy at taking action on climate change. Oh, what a lovely notion to end on. Read the book, but also don't just read the book. Join a group, bring yourself joy. I'm here for it. I'm, I'm all the way sold. Thank you so much, Alice. That is it for today's weekly economics podcast. We'll be back soon with more. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.